Jack Croissant. Hello and welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. This week we leave the field of play for an episode about an administrative aspect of the game that is vital for all cricket clubs, big and small, first-class counties and village teams, indeed all sports clubs to get right, and that's the safeguarding of those that engage in sporting activity. To help us, we met up with two individuals whose job it is to ensure that Welsh sport in general, and cricket in particular, is getting it right. So we'd like to give a very warm welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket podcast uh, to two people this week. Yian Watkins, who's the Safeguarding Director at Cricket Wales and Safeguarding Advisor for Glamorgan County Cricket Club, and Laura Wapham, who's Senior Consultant at the Child Protection in Sport Unit run by the NSPCC based at the National Sports Centre for Wales. Good afternoon both. Hi there. Afternoon. Okay, we're going to talk about safeguarding and we'll perhaps come to what that means and uh, and uh, your work around it in a little while. But I thought it'd be nice to start with you just telling us a little bit about yourselves, your connection with sport and how you got into the roles that you currently uh, occupy. So Laura, would you like to go first? Yeah, thanks both. Yeah, so I've worked for the Child Protection in Sport Unit now for the last 10 years, so it's flown really. Prior to that, I was a local authority social worker, so a little bit more boring, less connection to sport, but I'd always done sport as a child. I did gymnastics. Um, I'm quite tall though for a gymnast. As I got a bit older, I got more into the coaching side of things, but loved sport as a child. And I think when I was at school, it was my mum and dad were always a bit like, well, choose something. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So choose something that you like. Hence why I kind of followed the sport route and did sport at university and then um, went on to work for a charity with children in relation to sport. And that's when I went into social work and managed to train whilst I worked there as a social worker. So I've managed to, in this role, I've managed to combine my sort of interest and love of sport with my profession, I guess, of my chosen profession as a social worker. I've got a nine-year-old daughter um, who's heavily involved in sport now, so I get to sort of support her as a spectator. Okay, Yian, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, yeah, from a, um, from a professional perspective, I'm a retired policeman, um, spent 31 years working for the Gwent Police, uh, the vast majority of my career in the public protection arena. So um, adult abuse, domestic abuse, child abuse offences, but particularly sort of management of difficult and dangerous offenders. Uh, back end of my career, I was seconded by the National Crime Agency to do some international work, uh, which was um, uh, pretty fantastic, putting some safeguarding measures in place or helping other countries to put safeguarding measures in place uh, internationally. In regard to cricket, um, I got involved around just over 10 years ago now with uh, Cricket Wales. They recognised that there was work to do in terms of developing safeguarding and embedding safeguarding uh, policy and procedure and making the game safer. Uh, so I was recruited and I've been in that role now for 10 years. I was a volunteer for eight and a half years in the role and for about the last year and a half really I've been, uh, I've been on the staff. And from a global perspective I've been safeguarding advisor for probably four or five, uh, yeah it's five years now and um, helping Hugh Morris and the team. Of course more recently that's, that's changed a little so the Welsh Hathaway has come uh, under the umbrella of Glamorgan and um, so there's a little bit more uh, for me to do that that area of the business and uh, but it's exciting it's an exciting time we're making some real progress with um, making our game safer for children and for adults. And sports wise what do you do what have you done what do your family do? Yeah so um, I, I'm a cricketer I played since I was a kid uh, so I started at Llanarth in Abergavenny uh, or near Abergavenny and um, which is just the most wonderful club. I uh, went from there in the early 1990s to play play for Esk. I wanted to play at a, 
highest standard and played the three counties league against some uh, pretty good cricketers back in the day. And um, as I got older and slower and fatter, uh, I started to uh, uh, to to move closer to home. So Crazy Kalyog, uh, played for them for, and coached kids there for several years. And uh, I've squared the circle now, and I've gone back to Llanarth and um, playing with some of the guys that uh, I was playing with back in the uh, well, early eighties, I suppose. They're still playing on most of them, and it's, it's just a joy to be back at such a family club. Okay, Laura, we promise not to go uh, down the cricket byways uh, too, for too much for you, okay? That's okay, that's not a problem. <laughs> Our office actually looks out over Sophia Gardens, so I'm well-versed in uh, the cricket stuff. Absolutely, so. yeah, yeah. Okay, lovely. Been so, a spectator, I've been a spectator, yeah. I've watched some cricket in my time. <laughs> Fantastic. That's good news. Good to hear. We're going to talk about safeguarding in a little while. You're going to kind of one of you's going to give us a little bit of a, his, a potted history, if you like, of that word. But I wanted to start by perhaps trying to understand why safeguarding is so important and to do that by maybe one of you telling me about some of the things that have gone horribly wrong um, in, in sport in the past. Who, who's going to take that one? I'll go with that one um, because I can tell you a little bit about how the NSPCC developed the Child Protection in Sport Unit as well, then link to that. CPSU, or the Child Protection in Sport Unit, was established really in response to a number of really serious and high profile cases, child protection cases um, linked to a range of sports actually. One of the biggest was involving a, a swimming coach called Paul Hickson. He trained out of the national pool at the time that was in Swansea, so but coached within the British system. And he was jailed for rape and sexual assault of some of the athletes that he coached. And I think what happened was the governing body actually just responding when something had gone wrong wasn't sufficient. And they needed to develop policies and procedures to sort of target the prevention. And lots of these bodies started approaching the NSPCC, who were sort of leading the way at that time with developing safeguarding and child protection policies and asked for help really around how could they improve their own standards within these sports to sort of make them safer for the children and and adults who were taking place. The NSPCC quickly established that there was there was a lot of work to do in the sport arena and they set up the child protection and sport unit to respond to that and I think that was around 20 years ago now the, the unit was established. And since then, the work has changed over time, I guess. There's been further really serious cases that we've seen. Um, I'm sure many of the listeners will be aware of um, the concerns raised and the abuse that footballers suffered at the hands of Barry Bernal. There's been some documentaries more recently around that. And we've just in the last sort of few weeks received an independent review into what happened in football. So we've continued to see concerns be raised and what sport has done is try to adapt and change and further develop the safeguards they've had as we've had these big cases that have really shaped how sport has responded and I think sort of last summer we've seen different slightly different concerns that have continued to to be fed in around gymnastics and there's going to be an independent review there so we're constantly seeing high profile cases driving the work really and I think we very much tried to support sports all sports so I've worked with cricket for the last 10 years and prior to me it was my colleague so to strengthen their safeguards to make sure that something bad doesn't happen really so that things are addressed early on and um, there is a sufficient response really. Yeah, Laura's spot on. The, the, the reality is, sport is fundamentally safe, you know, and um, 
but we have a duty where things don't happen or don't don't where things occur that are not right uh, or where bad things happen as you uh, put it Steve that's where we have to respond we have to learn from that and we need to look at our processes and policies how can we make it safer I'm a cricket coach I've been a cricket coach for a long time and I can remember when I learned to be a coach I was taught the fun fundamentals of being a coach and that's always stuck with me over the years that we need to create that fun environment where children can come uh, enjoy their time in, in the sport feel safe in the sport and that's what the cpsu was about that's what my job was about it's about creating that environment where kids have a voice where kids feel safe and enjoy their cricket we have a duty as governance i suppose uh, uh, or, or safeguarding governors within the game to learn from things like the sheldon and the white review that's coming from gymnastics one of the things that i've learned from being involved now in sports safeguarding for 10 years and from my time in the police is that there's loads of collaboration that goes on. And um, this morning I was on the phone to two different governing bodies, just picking my brain on uh, various different things. And Laura's exactly the same Spencer day. I'm quite sure Laura on the phone to various different governing bodies, just giving tips and advice and helping shape uh, practices and policies. Yeah, I would just echo that, that it isn't just a sport issue. It's wherever children are, I guess. We've seen recent allegations in relation to education, and that's happened sporadically over the years previously. Um, and some of the other large reviews, you know, Operation Hydrant, that was linked to the Barry Bunnell uh, concerns from football, but that spanned loads of different organisations that involved children and children participated. Yeah. And yeah, and Jimmy Savile before that. Mm. It's, it's anywhere, I guess, sport isn't unique. And I think sport has developed some amazing systems to protect. When you think of the numbers of children participating in sport... Sport has done an amazing job of protecting the children. Um, unfortunately, we hear the, when it's gone wrong and the, the bad things, but I think there are so many strong systems in place now to stop that happening, really, and prevent so much of that. There will always be bad people. We just need to make it as difficult as possible for them to infiltrate in the sporting environment, really. Um, it's probably fair to say it's a, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, you know, in historical terms. It probably means both of you as professionals in that arena have, have seen a, a very quick kind of transformation of the work that you do with organisations. Do you want to just sketch out some of the obligations that, that kind of now feel you're, you're trying to get sporting clubs to, to, to be aware of when they're working with children? Probably the best example there is the safeguarding standards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the NSPCC probably 15 years ago now developed possibly a little longer, developed a set of safeguarding standards that all funded sports organisations. So that's funded as per the Sports Council. So in Wales, our largest sports organisations are funded by Sport Wales. It'll be Sport England in England. They make it a requirement if you're going to receive funding that they have to work their sports organisations have to work their way through our safeguarding standards. And my job in Wales is very much to support those sports to evidence that they're meeting it. So to develop wherever there may be a gap, um, a gap in policy or a gap in guidance and make sure that sports have those things so they're able to evidence it and achieve those standards. I have to say there was perhaps in the early days there was some resistance. I think we're in a very different place now 10 years on to where we were 10 years ago when I started and it was a little bit of a pushing people to do this and trying to persuade them why they needed to and I really don't think we're there anymore. Everyone is very aware of the requirements in relation to safeguarding and 
the implications it can have to the reputation of an organization when something goes wrong. We know that parents and the public, because of the bad stories in the in the press, are far more aware of what to look for when they're choosing a sports club or whatever. When you're taking your child to cricket, you know, which club are you going to select? And I think parents are doing a little bit more to sort of establish what's a good club? What does a good club look like? Oh, have they got DBS check, police checks in place? And, you know, have they got enough coaches here? I think even 10 years ago, I don't think people were asking those questions. I think it was kind of like, oh, right, there's an activity taking place down the road. Off you go, hope you have a nice time type thing. I think there is that public interest mm. that we've never seen before as well. So I think you're right. And it's interesting, you know, I'm a dad. I got two boys. Um, I wouldn't think knock, walking down the street, knocking on 55 High Street and saying, look, mind looking after my kids for two hours, please. But I would go to a sports club and let a coach have them. So as a dad, I have a duty to look after my children and to be engaged with that club, to ask those questions. What does the safeguarding structure look like? Do you have DBSs in place? Are, is this coach properly trained? You know, and just because they're in a sports club, we shouldn't assume that everything's in place. Ask those questions. Challenge. Because if a safe club shouldn't be afraid of a challenge like that. Uh, Laura's absolutely right. The, the, the journey that we've been on in the last 10 years has been a challenge, but by the cringe, we've come a long, long way. And um, um, you look at where we are now and how safe cricket is and how safe other sports are in comparison to what it was historically is immense. And we've got to remember the Paul Hickson case where safeguarding sport started, really. It was only 1988, the Seoul Olympics. So you're only talking 30 years, really, that we've had um, the opportunity to, to make the sort of changes that, that, that we have. From an adult protection perspective, that's relatively new as well. Um, so you, you will have, the listeners, I'm sure, will have heard the term vulnerable adult. Well, that only came into being around about the year 2000 in guidance documents, so not law. So there's expectations now in uh, the Social Services and Wellbeing Act, the Wales Safeguarding Procedures in Wales, the Care Act uh, uh, in England, which defines adults at risk now, not vulnerable adults, adults at risk. So we've started to look at how we safeguard adults within the game as well, and quite right too. And uh, there's an organisation called the Ancraft Trust, uh, and they lead on that and work very closely with English and Welsh sport uh, to safeguard adults within the game as well, which is so important. Are there any differences in the issues facing uh, elite sport to kind of ordinary recreational sport when it comes to safeguarding? Yeah, well, that, that, it's, it's interesting. My um, uh, my youngest, Unit 2, as I call him, um, Unit 2 is uh, was, a, was a swimmer, so competed uh, as a swimmer, but in particular, he was a footballer. Uh, and he was signed with a club and um, uh, at a, a very young age. So they were quite uh, restrictive expectations around what uh, what he should do, how he should behave, the fact that he shouldn't engage with any other sport, he shouldn't, he shouldn't swim anymore, um, he must eat this, he must eat that, he must behave in a certain way. And I think we've got to remember that no, no matter what sport you're involved with, if you're a child, you're still a child. You know, and just because you're on an elite pathway and there may be expectations, you look at some sports, you know, gymnastics, athletics, there's uh, where children compete at child level, you know, but they're still children. And remember what I said at the start of this uh, podcast, the fundamentals, we can't lose sight of that. So from a, a risk perspective, we've also got to remember if kids are on elite pathways, they're going to be spending a lot of time with probably a handful of coaches or just one or two coaches. So there's opportunities there for relationships to form with those individuals, for one-to-one coaching to take place, you know, and supervised coaching to take place. So this is where we need to be really careful and have 
uh, or procedures in place. And importantly, and critically, that children realise that if something's not right, they know where to go for help. Yeah, I think from uh, the CPSU point of view, we know that children who are on an elite pathway, from some of the research, that they are more likely to experience negative behaviours in some sense. But what we mustn't lose sight of is the numbers involved. So there are so many more children taking part part in recreational sport than there are in the elite system. However, there are additional um, factors that need to be thought about for children on that elite system. Yian's touched on some of them, but things like international travel um, and in certain sports, cricket being a type team sport so we tend to you know team sport there's a lot more children involved potentially more staff involved so there's a, a wider support system in some of the more individual sports that means you might be have small numbers of children traveling traveling for long periods of time so i think it needs it needs extra thought it needs additional training because there are some more vulnerabilities we, we think in the elite system than in general grassroots sport albeit we do see behaviors at club level just at recreational level where coaches are putting unrealistic expectations on children and and treating them like they are red get preparing for the olympics when actually they're just taking part um, a couple of times a week on a field so I think it's trying to, we're, we're doing a lot with sport around culture and what does that mean? And Yayan's talked a lot about the fun and that's what we're trying to encourage sports, especially up to sort of the early, you know, that transition age from primary school to secondary school it has to all be about fun and, and wherever possible, continue that fun and into an adult. You know, if we're trying to keep more people interested in sport for longer it has to be fun but there's definitely some additional vulnerabilities of children on that elite system you know they're going to lose there's a lot to lose if you think about how much time and energy you invested yeah into your son's mm. football or swimming there's a lot to lose when you know if you speak out about something yeah. that concerns you you know there's this anxiety and fear that parents and children themselves have about if I say something um, I'll lose my position in the team um, and that has a huge hold over children's willingness to speak out and to say and parents willingness to speak out and mm. and, and say sort of some of the interim things we're hearing out of the white review which is the review into gymnastics is is that parents were aware of situations that were happening but they also didn't feel uh, confident enough to be able to, to sort of share their concerns. Particularly with the selection issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just worried that if you rock the boat or you are the problem, it will have an impact on your child. And where we're trying to get to is that all sports have fair, well-publicised, because I think people need to know how to report a concern. Um, and then the action will be taken. So it's not like, oh, I've reported my concern and nothing happened. And three years on, you're still waiting. But... Um, we've got to the point where these organisations, as well as knowing how to, uh, to report, they, they then know how to respond and they do so in a consistent and fair way. You, you've both mentioned elements of the work that you do already. You give us a little perhaps insight of, you know, what a, what a week in, in the life of a, a safeguarding uh, a consultant or safeguarding officer is. I don't mind. Just, just give you us... Your cricket hat. You, you tell us about your cricket hat. Oh, goodness. Every, every day is different, really. And um, so it, it can be um, uh, looking at policy and procedure and that sort of thing. So within cricket, for example, at the minute, we're planning for what our procedures look like in 2022. So we, we want an absolute line in the sand for 2022 across all recreational cricket. 
uh, in Wales, from, from our grassroots, from our all-stars at the age of five, right the way through to our professional game, we, there's an expectation of a minimum standard that must be achieved, you know. So um, we, we can't pay lip service to safeguarding standards. We have to have uh, those processes. So we're working really closely with all the senior league executives, uh, with the voluntary safeguarding network and the Cricket Wales and Glamorgan staffing teams to fundamentally change our culture um, to talk about what those minimum standards are, those expectations that must be in place. So there's a lot of work going into that at the moment. Inevitably, there's the odd uh, concern that comes across the desk that, uh, that I'll be managing. Uh, but then there's lots of collaborative work. So we work very closely with the ECB. And this morning, I had a, a meeting with the uh, safeguarding lead for the ECB, looking at safeguarding policies and procedures uh, that we can change across all of England and Wales. You know, and it's fabulous that Cricket Wales is seen in the light that it is that we can help support and shape national um, structures. Alongside that, liaison with the um, NSPCC, the Child Protection Support Unit, who I know Laura's here, but my word, they're fab. Um, you know, they give us a lot of support and um, uh, a great sounding board uh, for when we're scratching our heads and not knowing which way to go with something. Um, and Craft Trust in terms of um, uh, adult safeguarding. And other sports, you know, we, we work really, really collaboratively and um, uh, we've all got different areas of expertise. So uh, we tend to link in lots with other sports as well. In, in summary, no two days are the same, ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say, just to add to that, that I, people only tend to contact me when they don't know the answer themselves, which means that I get the really weird and wonderful <laughs> queries around, you know, this week I've had some queries around travel, Um that would be complex at, at the best times, but throw in COVID into travel arrangements for children and groups of children competing internationally. And that's been a minefield. And um, yet yeah, we've been designing some new training this week for sports organisations. And um, in the last few weeks, we've been doing quite a bit of work with what we call the unregulated sector. So we've talked a lot about, you know, the systems in cricket and there is a really formal safeguarding structure within cricket. And, you know, it would be one of the leaders across Wales in relation to what you have in place. But there is a lot of sport that takes place across the UK that is completely unregulated, not part of a system, not part of a governing body, for want of a better description. Um, yeah, so we've been trying to really strengthen what can we do? What? How can we make it things safer in some of these organizations that don't have a structure um, and you're just relying on individuals and that's really difficult and I, I, I don't think we kind of we, we, we kind of know how we're going to do that yet but we're trying to make some inroads we've done lots of yeah. um, been presenting on that this week on some of the work that we've been doing in that area really. Do you want to talk about some of the successes maybe highlight or focus in on a piece of work that you've done with a club or with with a particular sport that either you're very proud of or that the sport should be very proud of? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if I look at where we started with Cricket Wales, um, we, we had um, some clubs had safeguarding officers, some clubs didn't. Uh, there was very limited visibility of compliance around who had DBSs uh, and that sort of thing. So I can tell you now with absolute confidence that every single cricket club in Wales as a fully trained club safeguarding officer who's completed what we call safe hands training, which is a cricket specific safeguarding course, created safeguarding protecting children uh, course or SPC uh, training, that they've got a, an ECB registered DBS that's in place. Uh, we've also looked at every captain in Wales. We've got, we know who our captains are now. Those captains 
have DBSs in place and, and, and we ensure that we, we maintain that. One of the key things there is that as an organisation, if we now, if at Abercombe Scott Cricket Club in the deepest, darkest valleys or the, the, the furthest point of North Wales or the deepest, darkest Midwest, whatever it may be, any club that changes their safeguarding officer or changes their captain, one of their first thoughts now is, right, what training do they need? We need to get them compliant with safeguarding. And that's that culture piece that we talked about and just how important it is that we get those um, those those fundamentals, those basic pieces in place. Uh, and you know, I'm quite proud of the, what we've achieved uh, within Welsh cricket uh, in that regard. I'll go for months. I'll go for a shorter term thing then. I'll go for a pandemic um, success story. I guess that traditionally, as with most training offers, everything that we've ever offered in relation to training has been done face to face. Um, it's a rock up at Sport Wales National Centre or rock up at um, wherever we may be in the, in North Wales um, and we'll train people face to face. That's always kind of been the MSPCC's position is face to face is better. And I think we quickly realised that as soon as the pandemic hit last year, that we were going to have to adapt what we did or nobody would receive any training in the gap in a period when people were at home and had the time and the space to actually do things so we managed to put all of our training offer to be delivered virtually so it meant adapting resources adapting everything we did really quickly to be able to train people from their houses so that when they did return to sport we did have a temporary we did return to sport at some point last year albeit it doesn't feel like it now that um, it's such a distant memory that people were trained and ready to go and had had a really positive experience so and I think that will continue forever moving forward now I think we will offer potentially face-to-face options in the future for those who would prefer to do it if that's feasible mm-hmm. but I think we'll continue with a blended approach moving forward mm-hmm. and I think you know the feedback we've received and some of the analysis we've done is that it hasn't had an impact on people's learning that people feel equally confident now with this than they did when if they attended a face-to-face course. So I'll go for that as a short-term yeah. success. I, I can give you a, a, a success story in terms of an individual as well, which obviously I'll keep anonymised, but we had a child within cricket who was identified with a particular um, condition, uh, which meant that if he was struck by a hard ball, it could be extremely damaging for him uh, for, in terms of his health. It, it could... Um, could end up with life-changing injuries just from one blow. So the, the consequence of that is, you know, cricket, we play with a hard ball, and um, uh, even by wearing a helmet, it, you can't mitigate that risk to the extent that it was safe for this young man to continue um, in the open game. So we sought uh, different opportunities, and, you know, Cricket Wales has got a, um, a fabulous uh, disability section. We, we, we looked at introducing this young man to the Welsh disability structure, uh, where he can play a different format of cricket, but represent Wales on a national level. You know, what an opportunity. And this young man, it's not safe for him to play uh, general recreational cricket, obviously, but to be able, to, as a consequence, to find that he still has a path uh, within the game and be able to wear the, the Welsh feathers and to represent the country on a national level, what an opportunity. What message would you like to give to people who may be listening to the podcast who are perhaps just cricket fans, cricket supporters, they may play in a, a local club. They may have children who are playing in a local club. What would be your message to them about the importance of this subject and why they need to be aware of it and to make others aware of it as well? I guess for me, it's that 
to speak up if something feels wrong. Absolutely. So if you see something that you think, oh, that I'm not comfortable with that or I'm not happy with that, that something feels wrong, report it. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. You know, and It's interesting, you know, I talked about the analogy of me dropping my kids off to a stranger's house and the fact we trust people in sport. And but we shouldn't treat, treat sport any differently because it's sport. So if you saw... I don't know, a child being slapped in Sainsbury's, we'd probably be looking to phone the police. Well, if we saw that in a cricket field, we should, shouldn't treat that any differently because it's on a cricket field. Okay, two very important voices. One simple message to speak out if you see something that's wrong. Definitely. Okay, that's lovely. Thank you, Yian. Thank you, uh, Laura. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I'd just like to finish by thanking the Cricket Safeguarding Network uh, they're amazing people. They give their time uh, as volunteers at clubs uh, and at league level. Uh, thank you for the staff and the people at Glamorgan for their support. Uh, we've come a long, long way with safeguarding within Welsh cricket, and we should be very proud of that, whilst recognising we've still got work to do. I've j- it's just occurred to me, perhaps people may want to contact you. Do you both want to give your contact details just before we finish? By, by all means, uh, Watkins at cricketwales.org.uk. Uh, you can find more details on how to contact me on the Cricket Wales website, which is full of safeguarding resources. So <laughs> fill your boots and go and have a look. Um, given I've got a bit of a difficult surname to spell, I would say just check out the CPSU website. Um, there's contact us page from there with my direct details on there. So that's just Google the CPSU and you'd come, you'd find us quite easily and more than happy to take any questions or queries. Okay, that's lovely. Thanks both. Cheers. Thanks very much. Thank you to Yayan and Laura for their whistle-stop tour of this subject. If you want to know more, their contact details are reproduced in the episode description. Next week, we are off to Penarth to hear about one of the Welsh sport's greatest servants, administrator extraordinaire Graham Crimp, MBE. As many will know, Graham passed away last year at the ripe old age of 91. We got his sons, Tony and Rob, to tell us a little bit about their father and his outstanding contribution to recreational sport in his hometown of Penarth and beyond. So join us next week for some more stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Hoilvaur, bye for now. Story you have Nigadani. Macrosech Gisesti. A bossuch MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail.com. Nate, El Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Nay, Intidalin Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email mwcpod nineteen twenty one at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.